1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, where Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So Paul is beginning this chapter kind of as a uh, continuation of what he's been sharing in chapters 8 and 9 with regard to the difference between, in chapter 8, lawfulness and love, uh, love for the others that we might be worshiping the Lord together with. Chapter 9 uh, talked about liberty versus love. And uh, we have a liberty in Christ that we all of us are, are aware of, but when that interferes with our relationship with others, then love should take a precedent also. In this chapter, he's going to be talking mostly about lustfulness and versus love. And uh, he uses the nation of Israel as an example that he wants to uh, show us through their experience what not to do or how not to be. And so I'd like you, after having read these first five verses, I'd like to take you now to Psalm 95, as I mentioned earlier, and I'd like to read with you uh, verses 6 through 11, because Psalm 95 gives a capsulation of really what Paul just said in these first five verses of chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. He says in verse 6 of Psalm 95, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they saw my work. For forty years I was grieved with that generation, and said, It is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Terrible thing that had taken place in their journeying after having been delivered from slavery in Egypt, Moses brought them to the border of the Red Sea. And you'll remember in the book of Exodus how that experience was described. Uh, and they came to a place where they were kind of shut up with a sea in front of them, mountains on either side of them, and the Egyptian army coming right for them. And the only way of escape would have been through that passage that the Egyptians were now closing up. So they were really what you would say is, in our way of looking at it, I'm sure, shut up to faith. They had no alternative. They had nowhere to go. They had to look up. And that's when Moses was led by the Lord to take his rod and, and strike the water of the Red Sea and lift his rod to heaven. And Moses did that. And when he did so, he said to the people, stand and see the salvation of the Lord. And the sea parted. And they crossed over the Red Sea on dry land. The sea stood up, completely congealed, walls of water on both sides of them as they crossed over the dry land to the other side of the Red Sea. And of course, the Lord protected them 
kept the Egyptian army from being able to pursue them by putting a barrier of a cloud of fire between them and the people of Israel. It was a great miraculous event. They passed through the Red Sea on dry land, got to the other side, and once they were all safe on the other side, the cloud lifted from before the Egyptians. And of course, you know the story, as is told in the book of Exodus, that the Egyptians then began to pursue, crossing through the same pathway, through that dry uh, Red Sea bed, but it became mud to them, and their chariots got stuck in the mud, and then the waters came back on top of them, and they were completely annihilated. The whole army of Pharaoh was wiped out in that one particular great miracle of God. The people of God on the other side now in the Sinai region were rejoicing that God had delivered them. They saw the power of God to deliver them from the hands of the Egyptians. They had seen the plagues that God had brought against the Egyptians and they had been spared from all of those plagues themselves. So there was no question that they knew that their God was indeed working on their behalf to deliver them. And he did it with a great and mighty miracle and more than one. Over and over again, he demonstrated to him that he was their God and they were his people. And that's where Paul is talking about these events in this first few verses of chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. He wanted the people of Corinth to remember the stories that they had already heard about the deliverance of the nation of Israel in that day when Moses brought them out of the land by the hand of God. They, he says, passed through the waters, they were under the cloud, they passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So the cloud was something that showed them the presence of the Lord constantly with them by day as a cloud uh, that covered them for shadow and in the night a pillar of fire so that they could see. He presented himself, his presence, in that cloud throughout their journeyings. So he really was a very, very special God to them in the fact that they saw his presence every single day of their journeyings. There was no exception to that. And Paul tells us that they were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea and they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. I find that to me most interesting. He talks about this passing through the Red Sea as a baptism. Now, baptism, as we know it, is an immersion into water. Well, none of the people of Israel got wet as they passed through the sea on dry land. But it wasn't the idea of being immersed that is being presented by Paul here. It's rather the identification with Moses as they passed through the Red Sea as the children of the Most High God. They were all identified into Moses and the cloud in the sea through that experience, they had become, with Moses, united as the people of God. And then it says in verse 3, they all ate the same spiritual food. Now, of course, that's a reference to the manna that God will have brought to them on a daily basis, six days a week, and on the seventh day there was no manna that would fall from the heavens, and it was only on the sixth day that they could take a double portion of what they were supposed to take each day, and that particular one day of the week where they could take the double portion, the extra manna would not spoil. However, on any of the other five days of the week, 
when manna had fallen, if they took more than they needed, it would rot. And it became a constant reminder to them of God's provision for them. The writer of the book of Psalms says that they ate angels' food. Remarkable. Food from heaven. Always provided. It was all they needed. And they should have been very satisfied with all of these things. They should have been recognizing on a daily basis that their God was providing every need. And then he says in verse 4, they all drank of the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. A most interesting thing that Paul is saying here as well. He's obviously referring to the fact that when they were first on their journeyings and they were encamped around Sinai, they began to grumble, and they said in the territory that is referred to as Rephaim, in that Sinai desert, they had no water to drink. And they complained to Moses, we are thirsty, why did you bring us out to die? And God spoke to Moses and told Moses to go to a rock and to strike that rock, and from that rock came forth wonderful amounts, all they needed, of water, fresh water. It was enough to satisfy the hundreds of thousands of people who were present in that assembly. Amazing miracle. God told Moses again to strike the rock, and he did so. And then Paul says that that rock was Christ. And so that's something that is a New Testament revelation. It's not revealed to us in any other place but here. Paul is saying that rock followed them wherever they went in their wilderness journeyings. In a spiritual sense, that was true. Christ was always with them. God had said to them, I will send my angel before you, and you will be with him wherever you go. And so they had the promises of God that he would take care of them, and he did, that he would provide their every need, both for whatever they needed to eat and also whatever they needed to drink, and that also he did. He provided the protection of his presence daily and nightly, and Moses was leading them, and it should have only taken about perhaps a little less than two weeks to get from Sinai once they had received the law and built the tabernacle and then gone on from there into the holy land of Israel, the land of Canaan, which was the promised land that they were expecting to go to. But when they got to the place called Kadesh Barnea, after a couple of years already in the wilderness, in Sinai primarily, they encamped there and they sent two men who were very, very positive and another ten men with them who were very negative in their reports about what they found in the land of Canaan. Those two men that had the positive reports, you'll remember, are Joshua and Caleb. The other ten men continually said to the people of Israel, it's not at all safe out there. There's giants in the land, and there's walls on the cities that are impossible for us to breach. Let us go back to Egypt. And they convinced the people, even though Joshua and Caleb tried to convince them otherwise, and they had evidence of the blessings that would be theirs if they entered the land, and that they could trust the Lord that had been with them all this time, but they wouldn't listen to Joshua and Caleb, and they chose to, to go with the others instead. And as a result of that, God was angry with them, 
and they were forced to travel for another 38 years in that wilderness, wandering through the wilderness. But it was during that many, many years of time that the first generation, all those who were 20 years or older, passed away because of their unbelief. And that's what Psalm 95 was all about. They would not believe God. And in their rebellion, he chose to punish them, if you will, by not letting them into that rest that he had promised to them. Only Joshua and Caleb from that first generation were able to enter into the land. But what about Moses? Certainly Moses should have been able to get into the land if the others didn't. Well, that's understandable. But Moses, why wasn't he able to enter in? Well, that's because at Kadesh Barnea, there was another incident where they cried out to Moses when he was very old now, approaching 120 years of age, and they did the same thing to him then as they had at the beginning. They cried out to Moses and said, Moses, we're not able to find any water in this desert place. You brought us here to die. We're going to go back to Egypt. They wanted to rebel. And again, Moses goes to the Lord, and the Lord says to Moses, This time, Moses, I want you to go to the rock that I point out to you and speak to the rock, and the rock will bring forth water for the people to drink. So Moses comes back from the presence of the Lord, and he stands before the people, and he's very, very angry with the people. And instead of speaking to the rock, Moses lifts his rod and says to the people, You rebellious people, must I strike this rock again? And he does that. He hits the rock. And the rock brings forth water. But that wasn't what God had instructed Moses to do. And God called Moses on that issue and said, Moses, you haven't sanctified me before the people. You haven't represented me as I wanted you to represent me. I told you to speak to the rock and you struck the rock. And remember, the rock is Christ, Paul tells us. And when you put that analogy that Paul gives us with regard to the rock that was stricken, at the beginning of their journeys, that really is a wonderful picture of the fact that Christ was smitten on our behalf for the salvation of our souls when he was crucified on the cross. But from that point on, God did not want him to be smitten again. Moses was to speak to the rock, and that is what he should have done. And as a result of his not having done that which God had required of him, God said, Moses, you will not enter into the land with the people. That must have been a terrible disappointment for Moses, and we know it was because Moses cried out to the Lord not much later and asked the Lord to please reconsider, but God said no. But instead, God brought Moses up, and this would be at the end of Moses' life, to a high mountain and allowed Moses to see the land, but he could not enter into the land. He never did. Until, of course, many, many years later, on a high mountain in Israel, north of the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus and three of his disciples had climbed to the top of that mountain, and Moses appeared with Elijah before Peter, James, and John, with Jesus, talking to Jesus about his departure. Moses was in the land, even though it wasn't at the time that he wanted it to be, but he's going to also be in the land again. 
And we'll see that according to the book of Revelation. I believe it's Moses who is one of those two prophets who will be standing in Jerusalem proclaiming the word of God during the tribulation period. But we've deviated somewhat from where I wanted to be, but I wanted to make sure that you understand that Paul is using these Old Testament events that he has described here already and talking about the fact that we as believers can associate with those things that the nation of Israel had experienced and we can identify with those people in very much the same way that Paul has described here to the people of the city of Corinth. So in verse 6, he says, Now these things that he just described became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Paul is talking here about a craving. They craved for different things. They craved for water. They craved for food other than the manna. We'll be going into that momentarily. But there's always a desire that they had had throughout their wilderness journeys to have something that wasn't theirs, wasn't what God intended for them. It wasn't what God had provided for them. They were dissatisfied with that which God had done. And as a result, Psalm 95 tells us they would not enter into his rest. Now his rest would have been the land of Canaan, a place of milk and honey, of great prosperity promised to them, and deliverance from all their enemies. But they wouldn't listen. These things are given for examples to us. And the very first thing that he says as we enter into this study is that they lusted, they craved, they desired something. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, that we are to flee youthful lusts. Fleeing lust is something that we as believers need to take very, very seriously. We are to be obedient to God's command. We are to accept what God has provided and be blessed to know that what God does provide, He does so because He loves us. And what God doesn't provide us, He doesn't provide because God loves us. He wants us to have only that which is best for us. And so we have to take that into account as we live out our lives as though we were, just like the people of Israel, totally dependent upon Him. And when we think of what Paul is saying here with regard to the people of Israel and hopefully apply this very thing to our own lives, we should realize that what God is expecting of us is that we would be satisfied with all of what God does because he pours out unto us all multiple blessings. He gives exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. He loves to give good gifts to his children. Why should we murmur and complain that what we have is not enough? Or why should we complain that we should want something other than what we have been given? Or why should we complain about what we have been given when it is what God's best is for us? That's what the nation of Israel was doing, and they were punished severely for their unbelief and for the rejection of God's perfect will for them. Let it not be so for us. So again in verse 6 it says, These things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. And then in verse 7, he gives another example. He says, Do not become idolaters as were some of them. 
As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Here Paul is referring to the very beginning of their journey when they were first before the Lord at Mount Sinai and Moses was called up by God into the mountain and they were left in their camp and they saw the presence of God in a miraculous way. They actually heard God's voice during that period of time. But it was 40 days before Moses came back back down from that mountain. And during that 40 days, the people began, began to become somewhat restless. And they finally, near the end of that 40 days, very close to the time when Moses would be coming down from that mountain, they came to Moses' brother Aaron, who was there as the leader in Moses' place until Moses returned from the mountain. But they came to Aaron and they said to Aaron, Make us a god. We know nothing about what's happened to Moses. This Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, as far as we know, he's dead. Make us a god that we can worship here. And so Moses, though he was not present, um, was hearing from the Lord all these wonderful things that needed to be taken uh, to the children of Israel. And Aaron is hearing all these complaints from the people. And I think Aaron was somewhat horrified at their request. But he condescended and he said to them, bring me all your gold that you can bring. And they had a fire and they put the gold into the fire to melt it. And it tells us that Aaron fashioned a golden calf out of that gold. And he told the people, here is your God, O Israel. And it tells us that they ate and they drank and they rose up to play. And that implies an orgy. They rose up to play. Complete idolatry was taking place right from the very beginning. And that was what Paul is saying in verse 7, that we should avoid. Do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. It's interesting that when Moses came down from the mountain, he had had the tablets of stone with him. And when he saw what the people of Israel were doing, he smashed those tablets and broke them in the ground, took that golden calf, melted it, and pounded it into fine powder, poured it into their water supply, and forced the people to drink that which was mixed with the water. And he was very angry with the people of God. And he went back up to the Lord and interceded on behalf of the people. And God was merciful. Amazing how merciful our God is. When you look through the history of the people of Israel, over and over and over again, idolatry was a very, very major problem for the people. Throughout their years, not just in the wilderness experience, the Corinthian church also had an issue with idolatry. And that's one of the things that Paul talked about in the previous chapters that we've looked at. They were a heathen group of people who would come to the Lord, and idolatry in Corinth was a major problem for the Corinthian church. And they needed to deal with it. And Paul is saying to them in verse 7, Do not become idolaters, as were some of them. It's a dangerous thing to worship idols. 
And we're going to see in a little bit later on in chapter 10, if we get to that tonight, that this idolatry had to do with uh, the temple worship of the heathens in the city of Corinth. And they were very, very apt to be part of that worship in spite of the fact that they named Christ as their Savior. So there was conflict in the church and he was dealing with that conflict. And frankly, for us, we don't have golden calves that we have in our bedrooms or in our living rooms. Obviously, we don't have any idols that we would have made that are made by hands to worship. That's long gone from the church as far as our worship of God is concerned. But what Paul is really talking about here is not just the icons, not just the inanimate objects that were worshipped in his day, but anything that takes the place of true worship of God can be and is, in many cases, an idol. And we need to avoid that kind of idolatry. Worshipping or, or taking uh, anything that allows that which is not God to replace God. That's idol worship. God wants our total worship of him alone. And he's a jealous God. And there's nothing else that should take any precedent. It's, as we have said many times before, Jesus Christ only. It's not Jesus Christ plus some icon. It's not Jesus Christ plus some uh, uh, method or, or not Jesus Christ plus some book. It's Jesus Christ alone. And that is our source of salvation. Anything else is idolatry. Then in verse 8, he says another thing. Do not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. So in chapter, verse 6, he talked about not allowing ourselves to be idolaters. And he had already said that again in verse 14. He's going to mention it uh, as well there in chapter 10, verse 14, where he says, flee from idolatry. Here in verse 8, he says, do not commit sexual immorality. And elsewhere in this book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 6, verse 18, we saw that Paul said, flee sexual immorality. Flee fornication. That's what sexual immorality is. Any sexual act outside of marriage is sexual immorality. And here in verse 8, he's talking about an incident in the nation of Israel very near the time that they were ready to enter into the land. They were encamped around the area of Moab, between Moab and Edom, on the uh, eastern side of the Dead Sea, of the, of the Jordan River. And it was there that they were encamped, preparing to enter into the land, but the king of Moab, Balak, was very angry that they were near his own territory, and he was afraid that they were going to be attacking Moab. It wasn't their intent, but he hired a prophet, a Gentile man from Midian, whose name was Balaam, to prophesy against the people of Israel and to curse the people of Israel. And he promised Balaam a great deal of money for that curse that he would be bringing against the people of Israel. Well, on more than one occasion, Balaam began to speak, but he told Balak, I can only speak what the God of Israel tells me to speak. 
So he knew something of the God of Israel, and he actually went to that God of Israel and sought what it was that he should speak on behalf of that request that Balak had made. But instead of cursing the people of Israel, every time Balaam presented a blessing of Israel or for Israel, Balak was enraged. He didn't get what he wanted. However, Balaam, we're told elsewhere, became a greedy man who actually did succumb to the request of Balak. But he did it in a very much roundabout sort of way. He told Balak, I can't pronounce anything but blessings upon the nation of Israel, but I'll tell you, Balak, how you can get what you want because this people worship the one true God. And if you take your prostitutes, your young women, and bring them into the camp of Israel and introduce them to your way of worshiping Baal and your gods are worshipped by prostitution and the young women of Moab would entice the men of Israel to sin against their God by having sex with the Moabite women. And that's exactly what took place. And as a result of that sexual immorality that took place during that time, God judged the people of Israel. And Paul tells us here that 23,000 fell in one day. Now, if you go back to the book of Numbers in chapter 25, the number of people who died was 24,000. It's not a discrepancy. If you look carefully, take note of the fact that Paul says 23,000 of them fell in one day. Numbers tells us that a total of 24,000 fell over the period of time that God judged the people of Israel. So, that is what Paul is warning against with regard to sexual immorality. Flee sexual immorality, people of God. There is no reason why any of us should be engaged in anything that leads us into such sin. Now, we may not be participants in sexual morality, but we might become observers of sexual morality if we're watching the wrong movies or television shows even these days, or anything on the Internet that is pornographic. Paul tells us in the book of Romans that even if we approve of those things that are done by others in that way, we are as guilty as those who do them, and that is sexual immorality at its worst. We might be able to be doing things secretly in our own home, and think we're getting away with that. But God knows every secret sin. So it may not be public knowledge. It may be something you're just keeping to yourself. But it's sin nonetheless. And you can be sure your sin will find you out. Flee sexual immorality. Paul is telling the people in Corinth, this is something they need to also be doing. And remember, they were actually allowing sexual immorality within their own church, as they were told by the Apostle Paul with regard to one individual who was actually sleeping with his father's wife, that they should cast him out, that they should not allow such things in the church. Flee sexual immorality. Flee youthful lust. Flee 
idolatry. These are the things that are being spoken of by the Apostle Paul, and they're every much as big a problem for the church today as they were in Paul's day. And they're something that he is pointing out to us, that the people of Israel suffered the consequences of having allowed such things in their experience as they walked through the wilderness journey as a people of God. And again, God didn't love them any less, but God hated their sin. So it is. Then in verse 9, he tells us, No, don't let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by servants. Now, temptation is something that we experience. But we are never to try to tempt the Lord. That is just something that is completely an abomination to the Lord. It says that they were tempted and destroyed by serpents. Well, that took place also in the book of Numbers, in chapter 21 of the book of Numbers. We're told that they were murmuring and complaining. They tempted the Lord. And it's here that he says in verse 9, they tempted Christ. And you may have in some of your translations the words, the Lord, but actually it is in the Greek, Christos, the Christ. They are talking here about the fact that they, although they were tempting Jehovah God, it was Paul's analogy, Paul's metaphoric statement that they tempted Christ here as well. What happened in that time of murmuring was that God sent serpents. And every time any one of them were bit by the serpents, they were killed. Venomous serpents. But it was also a time of mercy that God presented to Moses a solution. He told Moses to build a, uh, make a rod and place a bronze serpent upon the top of that rod and hold the rod up before the people. And whenever the people who were smitten were looking up at that bronze serpent, they would be healed. And again, that serpent is a type of Christ. For as the serpent was lifted up, Jesus said, so the Son of Man would be lifted up for the forgiveness of sins. God forgave their sins and he allowed them to live in spite of the fact that they had been bitten by the Serpent, which is a type of Christ, a type of Satan, rather. So they tempted the Lord, and many of them were destroyed, but many of them found the salvation of God through that experience as well. Then in verse 10, he says, Don't complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Over and over again, they complained and murmured. And God, well, he had to judge. He had to correct them, and he did so. This is probably a reference to the time when Korah and Dathan were complaining about the fact that well, Moses and his brother Aaron were the ones who were leading the people. And they started saying, we're not the, they're not the only ones that could lead us. There are other men that we could turn to to lead us back into the land of, of Canaan. And so they began to create an uprising among the people. And they complained, and they murmured, and they actually were almost successful in turning all the people against Moses. But God intervened, and he opened the earth and swallowed up those men and their families. Korah and Dathan were destroyed. And the uprising was 
put down once again. But they complained. I don't know if it's worth mentioning, but every one of us has to face every day with challenges. Do we face those days of challenge complaining about them? Or do we face those days of challenge with a prayer unto our God for help, for His mercy, for His grace, for His provision, for His guidance, for encouragement, for strength? That's what we should be doing. And again, all of this that Paul is talking about is for our benefit. And so he says in verse 11 a second time, now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. That's critically important. Paul, in that day, almost 2,000 years ago, told the Corinthian church that they were living in the last days. The end of the ages have come, past tense. Paul expected the imminent return of Christ. And so should we all as well. I don't take that lightly. I take that very seriously. I hope that you do too. We should be living every single day of our lives with the great expectation of the Lord's return, an imminent return. And that should make us conscious of the fact that we are to live for Him and keep our eyes focused on Him and on His will every single day day, every single hour of the day, every single moment of the day, every time we take a breath, it should be for the purpose of giving Him glory. And that is what I want to do. And so I look to the Lord, and it's especially so as we see the day approaching. We know that we're in the last days. In Paul's day, there was no real indication as we have it today that He was going to come but even then, Paul thought very much aware of the fact that it could happen any moment. There was no reason that Paul could think otherwise. Jesus hadn't given him any details. He just said to all of his followers, and Paul had learned of this from the other apostles, Jesus had said, keep looking up, your redemption draws near. That's why Peter would say, as Paul did, that we're in the last days, Peter said in First Peter. And also in Second Peter, he mentioned the, the fact that, that men think that we're crazy. They think that, that God's delaying his coming. But Peter says, nah, that's not so. God's timing is perfect. And Peter expected the Lord's return. John even made it even more intense when he said, these are the last hours. So don't ever say that the apostles and the early church didn't anticipate the coming of the Lord. It was very much a reality to them as well as the church fathers who followed after them. And it should be for us even more so as the day approaches. We see signs. We see things happening. And we talked about that on Sunday. We've talked about it on more than one occasion. And we'll continue to talk about it because it is the truth of God's Word. He is coming for His church. And we re-emphasize over and over again the veracity of God's Word, the promises of 
the Apostle Paul that he is going to come with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and the dead in Christ will rise for us, and we who are alive and are remaining will be caught up together with them in the air. In First Thessalonians chapter 4, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when we get to that portion of Scripture of the resurrection of Christ, Paul tells us again that at the last trump, we will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and our mortal bodies will put on immortality, and that is going to be the time of the resurrection of our bodies, that we will be with him in glorified bodies from that day forward, forever and ever, and we will be glorified in his presence to serve him all the days of eternity. That's the promise. Paul is saying that to the Corinthian church. He's saying that to us. All these things happened to them, the Israelites, as examples. They were written for our admonition, and we need to take note of that because the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, he says in verse 12, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. That's a stark warning. Don't take anything for granted. Don't assume anything. Obedience is necessary. Obedience in love. We need to make sure that we don't stray, that we don't drift, that we don't follow after all kinds of winds of doctrine that will toss us to and fro in the seas of life. These are the things that we need to be very careful about. We need to make sure that we don't follow after those things that the Israelites followed after. We don't want to make the same mistake that they did. Again, in verse 27 of chapter 9, Paul ended that chapter with a statement, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Paul didn't want to be put on the shelf. He didn't want to be playing the game and then having to be taken out and sitting on the bench. He wanted to fight the good fight to the end, and he did. Second Timothy tells us that. In the end of that great book, he tells Timothy, I fought the good fight. I've run the race. And I know that there is a crown laid up for me, a crown of righteousness. But not only for me, he said, but for all those who love his appearing. So no temptation, he tells us in verse 13, has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So Paul is telling us, here's the promise of God. You are going to suffer that kind of situation in your life that will be a temptation from time to time. And it's for your, the purpose of testing you to see if you are in the faith. Jesus wants you to be faithful throughout your days and he allows temptation to happen so that we can gain that kind of strength and uh, security in him that we need because he tells us here again no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man and he provides a way for you to escape that tempt temptation he will make a way of escape because he doesn't want you to lose the battle. He wants you to win. He wants you to be victorious. He wants you to be faithful to the end. And he provides every means that he has put before you and given to you by the power of his Holy Spirit to enable you to live for him no matter what comes your way, no matter what testing may be. And 
God knows that we are being tested in these last days. I'm convinced that as time goes forward, should the Lord tarry, things are going to get pretty tough in this world. Are we prepared for that? Are we ready to serve Him no matter what might happen around us? Whether it be persecution of the church or whether it be destruction, a failing economy, a lack of food, all kinds of pestilences and problems facing the world today and may be coming our way, are we prepared to still trust the Lord and enter into that rest which He has prepared for us? The writer of Hebrews tells us there is a rest that is for His church. And I want to enter into that rest. The people of Israel failed to enter that rest because of unbelief. That's the only reason why they couldn't enter the land of Canaan. That does not mean that those who did not enter the land of Canaan were unsaved. That means that they didn't enter into his rest. And keep in mind that we have proof of that because Moses himself did not enter in. But he still considered to be a faithful man of God. But there was a price to pay. Whenever we are disobedient to God, there is chastisement that He brings so that we can learn from those things. If we aren't willing to learn from those things that the Israelites did, He'll make sure that we learn from the things that we must individually face. And hopefully we will face them as though we knew that the outcome was that all things work together for good to those who are in Christ Jesus. Let it be so for each one of us, in Christ's name. Amen. Grace and peace.